five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. I hope everyone is enjoying their summer. For us, it's that time of the year where we wrap up the current season and prepare for the next one. With that in mind, we have a special podcast today where I'll introduce our new pop-up podcast, Terranauts, which will join the Space Q family in September. After today's podcast, which will mark the end of Season 2, We'll start our summer series of three podcasts, as we did last year, focusing on timely topics recorded by other creators. Then in September, we'll be back with Season 3. As we prepare for Season 3 and the new Terranauts podcast, I want to thank our listeners who have supported us since we started two years ago. If you haven't supported us yet, and you like our work, then please support us with a small monthly contribution through Patreon. Our creators page on Patreon is patreon.com slash space Q. Okay, now on to introducing Terranauts. How do you inspire the next generation of workers in the space sector? One way is to tell the compelling stories of those people who are firmly rooted here on Earth, unlikely to ever fly into space. We call these people Terranauts. They are 99.9% of the workforce, a vast majority of which you rarely hear about. Their contributions are essential to our knowledge of space and its use to benefit humanity. Today, in introducing Terranauts, I'm going to turn the tables on the host of the new Space Q pop-up podcast, Ian Christie, and interview him. Ian's first episode will air in September. Ian was born in Quebec City, raised in Medicine Hat, Alberta, followed a somewhat traditional route to the space sector, getting his undergrad degree in physics at the University of King's College in Halifax, followed by a master's from Dalhousie University. Then he made the decision to pursue a PhD at the University of Ottawa. While halfway through his PhD, he decided to take a part-time job at Neptech Design Group, which was started by defunct Lee Instrument employees. Ian was hire number six. By the time Ian left Neptech in 2013 as president and CEO, he had helped build the company to as many as 125 employees and seen the company win the best small contractor award in 2010 from NASA, the first non-US company to be so honored. In 2010, he was elected to the board of directors of the Aerospace Industries Association of Canada. In 2012, he was the vice chair of the Emerson Report Space Working Group. In 2013, after leaving Neptech, he joined the AIAC as an executive vice president, where he worked in policy, small business, defense procurement, and the space files. He worked at the AIAC until late May of this year. Ian has some fascinating stories to share between the time he started at Neptech in 1991 to today. Welcome, Ian, to our I suppose this is our, our first. No, that's fine. This is our first uh, iteration of, of uh, uh, an introduction to the Terranauts uh, podcast. So uh, I'm just going to go right into it because there's after reading your your biography and and, and reading up on Neptech and a few other things, uh, your life has been a lot more fascinating than I was led to believe. So. Um, and I got to start off with, you know, one of the little tidbits that I, I came across, which is, so reviewing your history, uh, and before we get to the actual space stories, I noticed you were in Air Cadets and I believe the Reserves, uh, but you got your pilot's license before you got your 
driver's license. That's What's true. The story there? Well, I was uh, I was 16 uh, in Air Cadets. I, I'd gotten my glider's license when I was 15, which you could do. Uh, and then I went away. Um, my birthday's in June, so I only turned 16 just before the summertime. Um, so I hadn't had a chance to get my driver's license. So I went away and got my pilot's license. Now, uh, the other part of the story is that I went on to fail my driver's license three times, uh, much to the hilarity uh, and entertainment of my family and my friends. So I, I, I didn't get my driver's license until I was over 17. So I used to have my friends drive me to the airport so that I could take them flying because I had a pilot's license, but not a driver's license. <laughs> and and uh, at age 16, now, was this in uh, Medicine Hat or were you in uh, Halifax at the time? You were still in Medicine Hat, right? Uh, I was still in Medicine Hat, and which is great. And, and it, uh, you know, my Air Cadet Squadron used to train at the British Commonwealth Air Training uh, Base, the, the, the remnants of it. Um, so, uh, you know, the prairies were a great place to learn how to fly, which is why they used it in the Second World War to train pilots. I, I don't think it would have been as easy anywhere else. Uh, you know, when you went to do the emergency landing procedure, uh, basically, you know, the only thing you had to do was avoid the yellow fields because they were full of canola. So, uh, yeah, it was a great place to learn how to fly. And when I went down east to, to go to university, I just I just didn't keep it up because it was too hard to get to the airport, too expensive, that sort of thing. So I, I have 50 hours on my private pilot's license in a logbook somewhere. <laughs> so now medicine hats in eastern alberta and i know that the times that i've flown into calgary uh it's been a little bit hairy at times with the wind did you ever experience that in in medicine hat yeah yeah well i didn't you know um since i could choose when to fly most of the time i didn't uh i didn't go flying when it was really windy. I remember uh, when I was getting my license, actually one of the cross-country trips we had to do, had to do a cross-country trip. So we, we actually had to fly down to the Calgary International Airport. And I, so I actually landed at Calgary. And I do remember there being a pretty stiff crosswind at the time. So um, that was probably the most exciting part of getting my license was learning how to do crosswind landings. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so you haven't flown in years, though, right? No, I, I other than in my simulator, it, it where I am uh, a high time, very experienced pilot. <laughs> All right. So now you um, were you always interested in space, or I mean, you got a degree in physics. I mean, you can go a lot of different ways once you get your degree in physics. What what sort of led you to from physics into space? Well, I I was interested in space as a kid. I, I remember particularly following the space shuttle program and and the Challenger accident. When I went to school, I didn't think I was uh, I was going to have a career in space. I thought I was going to stay in university and be a researcher, honestly, until um, well into my PhD. Um, I had been working for NEPTEC for more than a year. Uh, part-time. And I thought it was, uh, you know, when I took it, I thought it was a part-time job. I needed needed to pay the bills while I was in school. And then uh, Paul Neefen, uh, who who started NEPTEC, I remember the, being in a McDonald's restaurant and he said to me, you want to move to Houston and run our office at the Johnson Space Center? <laughs> I laughed at him because uh, I thought I was going to go on and do a postdoc. Uh, and then um, uh, there was a little matter of being needing to be able to eat, uh, which which wasn't easy those days if you were planning a, a career in academia. Um, and so by the time I was wrapping up my PhD, the the idea of of actually working full time for Neptech started to become a lot more attractive, and and I eventually accepted Paul's offer, and I I literally handed my thesis in at the registrar's office, got in the car, and drove to Houston, which was really my first big full time job with Neptech. All right, so. But let's go back just a little bit. So um, you're getting your PhD. Uh, you decide you need a job. Uh, why apply? You know what? What attracted you to NepTech at the beginning? Just some place well, to go? Uh, no, it was it was. Uh, uh, it was connections, actually. Uh, my father, who who uh, was working um, at the time uh, for the NRC, uh, knew. Steve McLean, who was getting ready for his first flight, and NEPTEC was preparing the equipment that he was going to fly with. And so through that, my father knew that NEPTEC uh, was looking for somebody part-time for the push to get ready for flight. Um, and so they just put me in touch with Paul, and uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. But it, it was just pure chance. And so what did you actually work on? 
So when I started at Neptech, uh, they were getting ready to fly Steve McLean's flight. Um, and the main piece of equipment was something called the Space Vision System. Uh, and uh, basically, they needed somebody to test what, at, in those days, it wasn't a flight load of software, it was a flight burn, because it was burned onto EEPROMs. And they needed somebody to actually test the flight burn of software, make sure it worked properly. <clears throat> as they were getting ready for the for the mission, so so I started um, basically taking procedures and just you know pressing the buttons and making sure that the flight burner software worked as they expected it to. And then, uh, and so you did that for a while, and then, like you said, a year later, now you were employee number six. By the time the opportunity that came up to go to Houston, were you still employee number six, or were there had more people been hired? I was the sixth person hired. I still maintain. I got employee number 10 because they didn't start handing out numbers until they hired four more people. And I was part-time, so I was at the end of the line. It's always a bone of contention for me. Uh-huh. Anyways, I was employee number 10 at NEPTEC. Um, so I worked on the, the flight burn of software, and then Steve flew his flight uh, while I was still working part-time. And then eventually Paul came to me and asked me if I wanted to help uh, do some software development, develop some new uh, algorithms for the next uh, upgraded version of the Space Vision System. So I did that for a while. Uh, and then I took the job in Houston, uh, where I basically had a little lab, um, actually right on site at, at the, the Johnson Space Center in the middle of the, the robotics group. Um, and uh, I basically worked on figuring out how to use the space vision system to put together the space station. Now, for those listening, this is around, what, 1992, 93? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, this is... Basically, I mean, the internet was around, but it wasn't, nobody was using it other than a few academics and myself. <laughs> well, actually, I used the internet to get my news because uh, I was in Houston. I couldn't get Canadian news, but then I found this wonderful thing called the internet where I could actually listen to CBC radio oh, newscasts really? on the internet. So that's one of my very first uses but of the internet. That early, though? Yeah, yeah, uh, Mosaic. Oh, you used that was what mosaic. the browser okay, so, was called. Okay, so you used it through Mosaic. Okay, yeah. <laughs> because at the same time that you were doing this is when I was starting my first business, and and I was actually developing graphical user interfaces and services for bulletin board systems before right. the web came around, and then I then I started to right. build for the web. Yeah, yeah, I remember those days as well. <laughs> so, you know, thinking back of those days, and so and the reason why I, I bring up the internet is because people today, young people today, you know, they take for granted the internet, the access to information, and not just the access to the information, but the flow of information and the instantaneous gratification of getting information. It, back then, it wasn't that way. So as a 27-year-old or so, Driving to Houston, right? The the experience then as compared to today would be quite different. So for you as a 27-year-old, when you show first show up at, at Johnson Space Center, right? What was that like? I mean, were you like totally overwhelmed? And, and you, what was your first meeting like with uh, somebody at NASA? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, luckily, um, I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, I'm not sure I ever would have walked on the place. Uh, you know, that's the great thing about being 20, 27, uh, getting your PhD, being 10 feet tall and bulletproof, right? You, you, just, uh, uh, you just do it. Um, yeah, the first meeting with somebody at NASA um, was really interesting because <clears throat> the space vision system was going to be used to put together the space station. That was that was the hope at the time. It hadn't been chosen, but there were a bunch of people uh, in the robotics group at, at JSC who, who wanted to use it that way. And so um, I had written, uh, but, you know, trying to figure out how to do that, um, how to, the space vision system needed a little round dots, targets that it had to put on the pieces of the space station. And there's a lot of choreography involved in trying to figure out where to put the dots, where the camera's going to be, you know, are you going to be able to see them when you're, when you're docking the pieces? So, um, the first meeting I had, everybody was talking about, well, they, could they make it accurate enough? Said, so, oh, well, I got a solution to that. I've been working on this great algorithm. It uses two cameras instead of one camera, makes everything much more accurate, much more easy to use, uh, solution to all your problems. And they looked at me and they went, yeah, the problem is that these all of these operations have to be single fault tolerant. So we have to have at least two ways of doing them. And there's only two cameras. So if we use two cameras, we won't be single fault tolerant. So what else have you got? And I didn't have anything. 
And, you know, it was the, an object lesson in the fact that solving problems in the laboratory is a whole lot easier than solving problems in the real world, or, or as I used to put it, solving problems according to your customers' constraints rather than your own. Um, and, you know, working in the space business, I think, has been a continuing education in that. And it's something that I think is one of the first things that, that good uh, young engineers learn, that all of the stuff that you do when you can control all of the variables, even those projects you do, uh, in university, you're, you control a lot more of the things than you do when you get out in the real world and you have a customer who needs a problem solved in a certain way. And the, the really good engineers are the ones who can work with those constraints, not who aren't just creative enough to find solutions, but are disciplined enough to make them work in the environment where they have to. So that was your first experience with, um, like you said, uh, taking it from the lab to the real world. What was your experience also with NASA culture at the time? I mean, you're, well, you're transitioning. Yeah, NASA, you know, NASA was working at the Johnson Space Center. I mean, literally working with people, certainly people who could remember the Apollo era. There were a few of them around, but certainly guys who, who had worked with people who had worked on Apollo. Um, the really interesting thing about NASA was, and probably still is, I haven't worked there for a while, is that these were guys who flew spacecraft for a living. You know, for them, talking about going to space was in no way a theoretical exercise. Within the next few weeks, they were going to be sitting in the Mission Control Center, and they were going to be operating a spacecraft on orbit. And that was so completely different from any other place that, that I ever worked. For most places, you know, even in Canada, space flights are things that happen, you know, reasonably rarely. We spend a lot of time talking about them, a lot of time getting ready, and then we eventually fly for, for most people in Canada. Uh, literally at NASA, NASA flew spacecraft for a living. That's what they did. Every few months, they launched another vehicle and operated it on orbit for a number of weeks. And it, it just made the culture very different. Uh, it was, you know, for them, when you talked about there might be a potential issue or something, this was, this was absolutely something. You didn't have time to work out all of the options. That had to work next time you flew, which added a real sort of immediacy, but a real professionalism to the, the people who did that. I mean, f for them, as I said, space was not a theoretical exercise. Space was something they did for a living. Now, what was your first exposure to, to mission control? So uh, the very first mission that I worked, um, I did what was called flight following. So I didn't have a role in the mission, but I sat on the console. So uh, you need to understand the way the, the mission control system works. Um, the thing that you see on the, on the television feed is what they call the flight control room. Uh, NASA calls it the front room. And this is where all of the, the, the flight controllers sit along with the flight director. Each of those guys has a back room, as they call it, that's anywhere from two to six people um, that actually are the ones feeding them the information through the, the little um, – uh, you know, headphones in their ears. So I worked in the back room of the robotic section, but the really interesting thing about it was that it was before they switched to the new flight control room. So I actually spent one mission uh, in the, the mission control center that was used in the Apollo days. Um, and, and that was fascinating. I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember a lot of it being, there was a lot of equipment from the Apollo days and then sitting on top of it were laptops and, and other pieces of equipment as the, you know, that they needed to, to run a modern flight control center, which is why they, they eventually moved to the, the new, we're still in building 30 at Johnson Space Center, but it was a completely new flight control facility. In working in mission control and space vision systems, um, you must have, I mean, how, at the time, how did this evolve for NEPTEC and what you were doing in Houston? I mean, you went there by yourself. How did that grow from, from that initial presence? Well, I, it was it was me, myself, and I for, for quite a while. And then actually I was followed by a couple of guys who were, who were basically there on their own. Uh, you know, my job when I was down there was to help the robotics group make the case that this artificial vision aid should be used to help build the space station. Because, you know, frankly, the problem building the space station, uh, I need to go back and remember the analogy I used to use. Uh, it was kind of like 
putting together the piece of space station was kind of like parking a Greyhound bus uh, in a docking bay, except you only had about three centimeters on either side of the bus and you weren't on the bus. You were across the parking lot looking at the bus, except you weren't looking at the bus. You were looking at a camera that could see like the front left fender of the bus. And that was the job that the astronauts had to do to put together the space station. It, it required really accurate maneuvering of the, of the arm to put these things actually in close proximity with one another so they could trip a latch that would then affect the capture. But if you weren't inside the capture envelope, then, you know, you'd have to abort and do it again. And the robotics guys at JSE were really worried about the accuracy requirements. They they just genuinely believed it was beyond the capacity of a human being, um, given the cues that they had to be able to maneuver that accurately. So they wanted to use the space vision system to provide an artificial vision aid that would literally digitize that position and, and present it to the astronaut so that they would know when they were within the capture envelope. So my job when I started at JSC was basically doing the simulations and, and essentially helping the robotics guys develop that story. Uh, and then eventually they did. And eventually uh, we, we did that by test flying um, uh, uh, an early version of the space vision system a couple of times, convincing people at NASA and the Canadian Space Agency that this, in fact, was something that Canada should contribute to the the building of the space station. Uh, and then eventually NEPTEC got the contract to actually build the operational system. Uh, that was long after I'd left JSC. But by the time uh, at its peak, we had an operations group at NEPTEC that was 10 or 12 people, about six of whom were actually in Houston. By then, they had moved off site and, and actually had their own office because they needed more space. But, you know, NEPTEC eventually worked something like 30 odd missions uh, and put in tens of thousands of hours in mission control. Uh, but that was long after I had left. And, and I'll be honest with you, the guys who did that job were much more professional flight controllers than I ever was. One of the things that you mentioned there, which is quite interesting, which um, quite not quite uh, within what we're trying to accomplish here, but it, it's an important point, is that the Canadian Space Agency back then made an investment in what NEPTEC was doing by funding you uh, in part to start with, with these small contracts, right? Which then yes. led to bigger contracts, which then led to NASA saying, hey, we need this system. Um, how important is that kind of development? Uh, and, and, and how many, you know, for all the little contracts that are out there, I mean, how many of them become big wins like this? Well, you know, I think if, if you if you ask other people, and frankly, I'm looking forward to asking other people uh, over the course of this podcast, I, I think you'll find that some version of that story is reasonably common. That the interesting thing for NEPTEC was that NASA got so interested in the system that they actually wanted something that was beyond what the Canadian Space Agency actually wanted to be able to fund. So, so that space vision system program ended up being a really interesting hybrid where half of the program, the shuttle half, was actually managed by NASA and the space station half was managed by the Canadian Space Agency, uh, which was exciting at times from a programmatic point of view, working for two space agencies uh, that both had some amount of requirements authority over uh System that systems that had a lot of things in common. So um, that was not at all a standard arrangement, uh, but it was fascinating to watch. So how many um, years did you spend in Houston? So I was in Houston for um, about 16, 16 months. Oh, 16 months, that's it? That, that was it for my time uh, in Houston. Oh, okay. uh, I ran the operations group for another four or five years uh, as we were getting ramped up and actually starting to have a you know a, a, an operational presence literally uh, and, and on every flight and I, I spent a lot of years going back and forth to Houston and actually working in mission control even actually I uh, after I had moved back to Ottawa right so how many missions did you actually go down to Houston and and and, and, and work at mission control uh, 
it's probably around 10. Okay. Uh, I, I don't, I, I lost track at some point. A, a lot of the missions that I worked in the early days were not missions where I actually had equipment on orbit. Uh, they were missions where we were testing the cameras, which we needed to characterize in order to be able to make the system work as accurately as it needed to. So I would spend uh, nights in mission control, literally moving cameras around, looking at a set of target dots on the side of the space shuttle and literally recording video that we would record uh, that we would characterize later to try and understand exactly how the cameras worked. Now, what's it like knowing that you've got a piece of hardware and I'll talk about the shuttle first on the shuttle. That's critical to what's going to happen in a mission. Yeah, well, you know, in those days, in the early days, we, we certainly weren't critical. We were just, uh, as they called it, a development test objective or DTO. L- later on, after NEPTEC um, was selected to make the, the laser camera uh, sensor that uh, NASA used to inspect the space shuttle. This was after the the Columbia disaster. Uh, then then our equipment was actually and and when we were putting together the space station, the space vision system equipment was designated as being criticality one. So it was essential to to mission success or to safety. And you know most of the time. Um, you don't think about it because if you do, you you know you kind of you'd get paralyzed. The the point is, no engineer wants to work on something that doesn't work. So you spend your time making sure that you do as good a job as possible. And and the thing was, by the time we got to that level, we had a lot of people at the company who'd been doing this for a long time. And and like the people at NASA, you know, they flew spacecraft, space equipment for a living. Uh, they really understood what was going to be necessary in order for it to work, not only for it to work in the environment of space, but to work in that very massive integrated environment that was the space shuttle program. And and that's in some ways the the kind of experience that certainly can't be taught in school and can't be taught any other way than doing it. And that's why people who've done that are so valuable because there are so many constraints that have nothing to do with physics. There are just things you can and can't do uh, on board an integrated vehicle like the space shuttle. And there are things that you can and can't do in the environment of space. And and these are very difficult things to know unless you've lived that reality. And I, I was very lucky by the time that that we were doing that, I was you know managing the company. I wasn't working day to day, but we had some extremely talented people uh, who were just great engineers who really made those critical systems work and work in a very demanding uh, physical environment, but a very demanding programmatic environment too. Now, the Columbia disaster was in two thousand and three. Um, how did this uh, affect uh, you? Uh, the people working at sure. the company and, and, and what did it mean for the company afterwards when, when you were able to create a system to, to inspect the, the tiles? So there's a lot of parts to that question. You know, on a, on a personal level, uh, I remember sitting at the table. Uh, I'm in the same house, so literally 15 feet from where I'm sitting now, and getting a call from a guy that I worked with at NASA who'd moved on to another job, and he said, we lost Columbia. I said, what are you talking about, Dan? He said, we lost Columbia. Check the news. And uh, it was unbelievable to me. I had worked so many uh, missions and, and you know, everybody was always worried about reentry, uh, but it was kind of always the, you know, the last thing it was, it, it was at the end. And um, what was really uh, got me was when I, I read the transcripts of the mission control center, because I, I knew some of the people who were working that day in MCC uh, and I certainly knew the language and it all sounded so routine until suddenly it wasn't. And the one that, that really got me was when the flight director, and I forget whether it was Bob Castle or somebody else's, uh, he says, GC locked the doors, which GC is ground controller, you know, handles all the ground facilities. And, and so he was basically saying, lock the doors, everybody put down the phones. Our job now is to basically record everything we've got so we can reconstruct this catastrophe later for the accident investigation team. And I just thought, 
I, I just chill. I, I'm sitting here now. Chills are going up and down my spine to think what it must have been like to one of the to be one of those guys in MCC. You come on shift thinking this is the last shift. We're going to get them home. We're going to celebrate another successful mission, and you end up backing up all of your system files so somebody can figure out how we killed seven people today. Um, you know, I, I just I can't imagine what that would have been like. But but you know, that's the thing is those were people who had to do that. You know, for everybody else, it's a news story. For anybody who's been involved, you, you can really, you know, you can think about what it would have been like to be one of those guys. Uh, you know, and, and I think everybody that I knew that worked in MCC had a, had a similar reaction. Now, you know, out of that... Um, you know, ended up coming a real opportunity for NEPTEC because we'd been working on this 3D camera sensor. Um, and it became obvious that the really important thing to do was figure out whether or not there was any damage to the shuttle tiles. At the time, they eventually, you know, concluded it was the reinforced carbon-carbon panels on the leading edge of the wings, but they didn't know how much damage they'd actually suffered. And they were afraid that even very small damage, like the thickness of a credit card, um, could actually be fatal. And, and they were really concerned about how they'd ever be able to detect something like that. Um, and they eventually decided that the laser camera system, if it was if it was updated and designed right and, and could interface to this new sensor boom that they were building, that that would be something that they wanted to use to check and make sure um, that there weren't any cracks, basically, in the reinforced carbon-carbon panels on the leading edge of the wing. So in the end, that's what Neptech did. They, we actually produced a flight unit in less than a year and a half, I think it was about 16 months that it took to go from a design to a flight unit that was actually on board the vehicle and launched. And, uh, you know, it was quite a thing to be a part of that return to flight program. I mean, this, this was NASA... Uh, this was NASA with its back against the wall. I mean, the shuttle was its premier program. And uh, there were real questions about whether it would ever fly again, um, you know, immediately after the accident. So to be, I, I, I remember saying at the time that it was kind of like, it was kind of like almost like a, I don't know, a, a crisis in the family. And you, you show up and everybody's standing around looking glum, um, but everybody's trying to figure out how to put the pieces back together. And it's like like maybe the family business burned down and and you come you come together with everybody else. And, you, you know, although it was from a business perspective, it was a big success for NEPTEC. Honestly, for most of us who worked on it, it was a question of showing up and going, OK, how can we help? What can we do to get this enterprise back up and running? Because, you know, by that time, uh, we'd all been working on the shuttle program. I'd been working on it for 10 years. I mean, I, I was a shuttle guy. Uh, I wanted that vehicle to fly, and I wanted it to be safe, and I wanted to prove to the world that we could do that again. And, you know, uh, yes, it was extremely important for Neptech's business, but it was also important to me personally, to be able to make that contribution and feel like, uh, you know, we were a big part of being able to convince NASA that they could do this safely again. Yeah, and the shuttle, um, I believe, only flew 22 more times after that, between 2005 and 2011. Were you there? It's probably yeah. something like that. It was yeah, one oh one oh five and one oh seven were the were they the first one? I forget which one was the, the Columbia and then one thirty one I think was the last mission. So it was something like that. Yeah, I'm just looking at it right here. Yeah, so Columbia was 107. And yeah, and then uh, then they went to uh, 114 for the return to flight. Um, right. and then 121 was the full uh, back to missions. Um, STS 121. So yeah, and then were you there at, right. the, at the last shuttle? I was. I, I was actually. Uh, it's funny. I <laughs> I got invited to a lot of shuttle launches and, and didn't go to most of them because I was working in mission control. But but the last uh, shuttle flight at that point, I wasn't working at MCC anymore, so I actually got a chance to go. So that was a pretty bittersweet 
uh, moment um, to be, uh, you know, the shuttle had been a big part of my life. I, I had been around, I think the first mission I worked was like 61. So I, I had been around for about half of the shuttle program, it turns out, when, when all was said and done. Um, so it was, uh, you know, it was it was a great way to say goodbye to uh, a big part of my now, life. Uh, just going back on the shuttle for a second, I, I've got a note here about the shuttle carbon panel chicken cannon test. <laughs> well, this was all part. Yeah, well, this was all part of the Columbia accident investigation, which again was just fascinating to be on the inside. I mean, everybody else hears about it. Um, the extremely nerdly of the uh, of the listeners may have actually seen or read the Columbia Accident Investigation Board report in its eight hundred odd page glory, um, but for most people it was just a news story. But but we were actually kind of part of it because we uh, we had convinced NASA that that the laser camera system uh, had the capacity we thought to be able to do the things we needed to do, um, but there was a real question about whether or not we'd be able to detect the size of damage that they thought they were going to need to be able to detect. So they arranged that we would ship a laser camera system to the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, um, where they were doing literally chicken cannon tests. So they were taking um, reinforced carbon-carbon panels, uh, old ones, and, and they were literally using an air cannon to fire a piece of foam that was the size that they thought had caused the damage at these RCC panels. Because there were a lot of people who just didn't believe they could cause the damage that, that was necessary. And so they had done a bunch of low-fidelity tests. But the thing was they had only one panel that really represented the, the panel that they thought had been damaged. It was the right panel number. It had been flown before. So they were saving it for the very final test and after they had refined all their tests technique. So they, they asked us to go to San Antonio for the last test. The idea was they would fire the foam at it. If there was damage, we'd take the uh, the laser camera system and we'd look at it and we'd see if we could detect the level of damage. And I remember uh, for some reason the, the guy who we were working with at NASA, his name was Jim. Um, so we, we're standing around and they, they you know, this is, there's one chance to do this test. This is the only shot they're going to get at it. So there's probably 500 people watching the test. It, it's in San Antonio. It's hot. It's sunny. And I just remember the hush that fell over the crowd as they counted it down. They fired the the foam at the panel, and the panel almost disintegrated. There was a hole big enough to stick your head through in that panel after the foam hit it, and and you could tell because pieces flew everywhere. And there was the the hush that that had lasted until they fired it lasted about another ten seconds, and there was just this eruption of sound as people were just amazed. And I remember leaning over to Jim and going, "Jim, I think we can detect that damage." Uh, so, you know, and, and, uh, in the end, uh, you know, we did end up taking scans of lots of damage on orbit because there continued to be minor foam strikes, but luckily we never found anything in an RCC pen. Yeah. T- tell me about, um, taking those scans and, and you, you would make 3d models of, of any damage or any, anything that you found. Well, this was the thing was that the NASA, not only the value of the laser camera system was that it not only could detect whether or not there was damage, it, it could characterize it in three dimensions. So I remember one of the first flights, it was probably the first flight, um, the first return to flight, there was still some more damage and, and there was some damage that they were pretty concerned about. So we were able to make a 3d, uh, you know, 3d scan. Um, and, and one of the cool, things at the time was 3d printers were just were just becoming available so we were actually able to make a 3d model literally a printout uh, of the damaged area and hand it to the mission management team within hours of having done the scan and say well that's what your damage looks like and they could literally run their fingers over it the the actual more valuable thing about having the 3d quantitative data was they could also run it through all the mathematical models that they had to determine whether or not that extent of damage was actually going to be problematic during the re-entry process. And, and in fact, it wasn't. Uh, and they were perfectly comfortable coming back with that level of damage because they'd, they'd run all of the, the tests. It, it was funny. I remember somebody for the media saying, um, you know, are, are you going to be worried on Sunday or whenever when the shuttle comes home? And I said, no. That's why we make the measurements, so nobody has to worry. Now, you uh, also did some, like, uh, you obviously had to work with the astronauts to get them trained on this. Yes. What was it like uh, training and, and, and working with the astronauts? 
you know, that was one of the best parts of the job. When I when I worked in Houston was when I, I actually did most of the direct astronaut training. And, and I it just really lucky the guys I got to work with were Chris Hadfield um, and, and his uh, uh, and his Sorry, and his crew for STS-74, his first flight. And it it was always fascinating um, to, to work with astronauts and to train them because, um, it, you know, it was clear that they knew that they were going to have to be the guy. They were going to have to be the person who actually had to make this work in an environment where, you know, they could call you, but you weren't going to be that much help to them. So you'd get midway through a training session and suddenly it would go from you training them to them asking you questions. Well, what's going to happen if this? What's going to happen if that? How am I going to? Where's that in the procedure? Where do I find that? And and it was a it was a very, you know, it really kept you on your game. You, you couldn't just pass on the information. You, you realize very quickly that you these guys are very serious about preparing. Uh, and that, I think, was another thing that most people don't realize about spaceflight is, you know, that crew spends somewhere between 10 days and two weeks on orbit. They, at the time, they were spending as much as two years for a complicated mission getting ready for it. They had practiced that, the, the aspects of those missions, the critical ones, hundreds of times before they had to do them on orbit. And I think that's the, the thing that people don't don't realize about the space program. One of the things that makes the space program, you know, quote unquote, expensive is because you want it's so critical that you get it right at the time. And it's such a demanding environment that you just can't leave things to chance. You have to model, you have to simulate, you have to test. When there's humans in the loop, you have to subject them to the failures and figure out they need to figure out how to react and when. And all of that takes up a lot more time than actually flying the mission. Now, you also, obviously, besides your work at Mission Control, you also spent time at the Cape. Yes. Uh, what was that like? Well, you know, again, it, it's it's it was a very particular culture. Um, what would happen is that uh, on our test flights, we would actually have to they, we would ship the equipment to the Cape. The, the Cape would install it on the orbiter uh, while it was in something called the Orbiter Processing Facility or OPF, which is where it sits on its wheels. Right. They tow it from the runway into the OPF on its wheels. Uh, and then they installed our, our system. And then somebody had to go there and actually make sure that once it was installed, it was working. And they call that the in-vehicle test or IVT. So I did a few IVTs. But it was really interesting working at the Cape because it's this huge industrial complex. And these, uh, in, in a lot of cases, massive in, industrial, like if you've ever seen the crane that you know, lifted the shuttle vertically. I mean, it's huge, um, you know, literally an industrial machine. But it's all done in a clean room. Like you can't get on board. You couldn't get on board the space shuttle without literally putting on the cheese factory hat and the mask and the, and the, the, the lab coat. So you're here, you know, working on these incredible industrial processes in a clean room environment and, and literally working on checklists where that have been developed for months that, that, you know, sometimes two and three people have to sign off on literally every step. And it, it was just, it was amazing to see, you know, real heavy engineering being conducted in that highly, highly, highly disciplined environment. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a line, uh, you know, when people talk about the military, the line is that, you know, amateurs talk about weapons and tactics and professionals talk about logistics. Um, and, and I always used to say that the line in space should be that amateurs talk about technology, but professionals talk about process. Because really, uh, any spacecraft that is going to fly and is going to work with any level of reliability has to be subjected to very, very disciplined processes. However impressive your technology is, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work when it gets up there. Yeah, I was there for the last uh, shuttle flight uh, as they were prepping Atlantis uh, for flight and actually was in the VAB for a while while they were doing their work there. And and a few got into the orbital, orbital of, um, um, oh, what's it, what was the name of it again? The, the orbital, orbital, orbital yeah, processing yeah. facility? The orbital processing facility. Yeah, I was in there for a while too as they were, uh, I suppose uh, this was, um, oh, 
not for Atlantis, but after the previous shuttle had just finished right. its last mission. Yeah, so that was right. quite something. Um, well, you know, I actually, uh, the, the, I only ever worked in the OPF. Guys who followed me at Neptech got the really uh, impressive experience because they didn't, because then they started installing the space vision system on the pad. So after the shuttle was vertical and mated to the, the tank and they dragged it out to the pad, that's when they do the IVT. So there were a lot of guys who worked at Neptech who have pictures of them sitting in the shuttle cockpit while the thing is sitting on the pad. And I never got to do that, but that would have been impressive. That would have been fun. <laughs> so you, you worked with um, both in the Canadian and the NASA program. What's it like and what's, what's sort of the, some of the differences? <laughs> well, you know, like we I have said, another hour? <laughs> you know, we have another hour. You know, um, I think the biggest difference really, uh, you know, was that that NASA was an organization that flew spacecraft for a living. Well, when I worked at JSC and the people I worked for, the program manager I worked at JSC, they they were already running programs that that literally provided equipment to the space shuttle um, and and flew every few weeks. Uh, for the Canadian Space Agency, generating flight equipment uh, at, at the time uh, was literally a once-in-a-lifetime experience for some of the people that, that I worked with at CSA. Um, so not that they weren't good, not that they weren't conscientious, but it, it was a completely different level. Um, for one, you know, in, in some ways they were far more concerned about it because it was literally the only time they'd ever done this. But on the other hand, they really just didn't have the, the experience of the guys at NASA of knowing what was important and what was not. Um, and I think that was the thing that working for NASA, NASA had a very finely tuned sense. If they told you you needed to fix something, brother, you needed to fix it. Um, and if they told you it was going to be okay, then you could trust that this was not something that was flight critical. Maybe you'd have to fix it in the next iteration, but but you could you could get through the flight without fixing that wrinkle. Um, but if they said, stop, put down the tools, we're not flying unless you fix it, well, you fixed it. All right, so uh, I've got one more question. Sure. Um, uh, I think, uh, you know, with, with podcasts, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, and I suppose I'm discussing it because, um, you know, with Terranauts, uh, just like the Space Q podcast itself, you know, you could talk forever. Yes. <laughs> Lots of stories. But the audience, they prefer to have their, their sound bites in about 30 to 45 minutes maximum. Sure, type. sure. So which is where we're at right now. So which is why we're, we're going to wrap it up with uh, one last thought from you. Right. And um, so uh, at one point you were the uh, Cassie president. Yes. Uh, which was the Canadian Aeronautics and Space Institute. That's right. Uh, and you did a talk. Uh, yes. A tour talk. Did, yes. Ooh, tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> well, every year the Cassie president does a does a, a tour, the president's tour. So you, you prepare remarks. So I, the the title of the talk um, was called um, "Themistocles in the Space Program" or "The Attractive Power of the Big Idea," and, and the basic thesis of the talk, which is actually started the idea came to me I, it was similar to remarks that I, I actually uh because i was cassie president when the international astronautical congress was in toronto i i spoke at the opening ceremony and it was it was uh, the president's tour talk was ex an expansion of the, the things i said at that at that opening ceremony and it's basically that the idea was that you know themistocles is a greek politician who basically convinced uh, athens that they should take all of the money that they'd earned in their silver mine which was substantial for the year normally it would be distributed to the citizens and he said we should pool all of that money and we should build the best navy that there has ever been and we should basically do that because we can't because we have the capacity to do that. Um, and, and I thought, you know, I, I don't know what Themistocles said, but it must have sounded a lot like um, John F. Kennedy when he said, we choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And, and I thought, you know, this, this need to do big things together is very much part of human DNA. Uh, I, I think it, it's probably baked into our genetics that we want to work with other people, but we want to do things that are big and challenging and that make us actually have to work together, that get beyond the routine. And and there's 
lots of ways of doing that, but space continues to provide one of the best environments where we have to be constructive. We have to work together. We have to solve problems. Uh, you know, the, the old line is nobody gets to space alone. <clears throat> and and I think that's one of the reasons, one of the values of the space program. It, it, it's not a reason in and of itself to have a space program, but it's one of the ways that using space to solve a lot of the problems is incredibly valuable because it provides a forum in which people get beyond their parochial concerns, dedicate themselves to a big idea that everybody is dedicated to uh, internationally uh, as well as, as within your own organization. So I think that that's one of the real values of doing things in space is that it, it stretches us so far beyond what we're used to doing that it makes us work together and it brings out some of the best things about human beings. And and I think that's one of the things that's always attracted me to space. And I think it's one of the things that attract a lot of people to space as an endeavor. And so throughout the history of space exploration, we, we've done some pretty big projects um, and we're about to embark on or have been for many years now working on, I suppose, uh, the, the next big project, which is uh, a return to the moon and going beyond uh, the moon. Uh, any final thoughts on, uh, on, on the new Artemis program and, and how it's a U.S.-led program but will include Canada and other partners? Well, you know, I, I think it's it's um, it really is a continuation of the history of humans in space. For um, humans started out going to space, competing with one another very much, the the Russians and the Americans. But but really, long about the time that I started in the space program was was when we started doing uh, the shuttle Mir flights. Since that time. Um, space has been a cooperative endeavor. Yes, there are going to be countries that that lead things, but but truly, no country is ever going to get to space alone again. I don't think. Um, so I, you know, I'm very excited to be going back to the moon. I'm very excited that that Canada is a part of that. I think it would have been a real shame were we not. Um, I don't know how it's going to work out. There's obviously a lot of water that's going to have to flow under a lot of bridges before we get back to the moon. But I'm I'm confident that the people and the skills and the technology and the organizations that we have in Canada are well-placed to make a major contribution to that human endeavor, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. All right. So, Ian, you've been the guest. The next time that Terranauts uh, uh, broadcast an episode, you'll be doing the interviews. Are you looking forward to that? Uh, with with only a small amount of terror in my heart, uh, this is uh, I, I've listened to podcasts for years, uh, and I've always thought it would be a fun thing to do. So I'm really happy to have the opportunity to do it, and, and I'm really happy to have the opportunity to find some really interesting people who've had interesting lives in space, but but who've never left the planet, um, and bring those stories to people. I think it's going to be a really fun thing to do. All right, so we will let you know. Uh, in the next little while when that first episode is going to air. It's going to be sometime in September and who that very first guest is going to be. All right, Ian, we're signing off. All right. All right. Bye now. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.